0: Thank you for tuning in to Game Investing Radio. Hopper here to talk about the biggest collectible game investment in the grading game for 2020. I don't think anyone's going to beat this deal. A team of three billionaires just bought Collector's Universe, which is the company that rumored to make a buyout offer for WADA Games either a few months ago or it's continually negotiating. We don't have any details on that, but... Collectors Universe is the preeminent collectibles grading company in the world. They uh, run the brands um, PCGS, which is the leading coin grading company, and PSA, which is the leading card grading company. And uh, if you follow my Instagram, you'll see the world records, starting with the $10 million coin. That's a PCGS-graded coin. Um, Then you've got... uh, some cards such as the Magic the Gathering at $250,000 and then you've got the uh, Pokemon card that just broke a world record a few weeks ago that uh, is up in the $300,000 range and that's a PSA card. So, Collector's Universe is really the uh, the heavyweight in the grading industries. Um, and three billionaires just bought them for 0. 0.7 of a billion dollars, so $700 million to take them private. So they bought all the stock and are taking the company's private. Um, Collectors Universe also has a website where they do population reports. They used to put out printed price guides. Um, They have databases for PSA registry sets. They would be the model for any graded company like CGC, BGS, WADA, uh, VGA. I mean, if you really want to uh, keep up with the Joneses, you really have to look at what Collector's Universe is doing. They're also incorporating artificial intelligence this year. They're incorporating a robotics and in grading and uh, pre-grading, I do believe. They're expanding their operation. I mean, the company's blowing up, basically. So these three billionaires came in and decided to get into the grading game. Where did they come from? Who are they? Why are they interested in collectibles? Well, let's go into that right now. So out of the three, um, Nat Turner is the young guy and uh, he sold his first company, I do believe, for eighty million dollars um, and then his second company for a couple billions. So he uh, he's a real young billionaire. Um, his second company, the, the way he became a billionaire was a second company using uh, software to basically um, uh, provide cancer treatment centers with, uh, I think, real-time data. So basically data management and software. He started the company to solve a problem because uh, his younger cousin was diagnosed with leukemia. So it wasn't a dot-com chasing the riches type of thing. He was solving a big problem. And in the end, he sold out to a large company and got paid for solving a big problem. Software is a good way to solve big problems. Um, What about his collectible background? Well, I found uh, an interview at PSA from late 2018 that goes into Nat's passion for uh, sports and trading card investing. Um, Sports is a game. Sports cards is a game, so that fits under the game investing umbrella. Um, And I'm going to try to read through this and try to pick his brain and see, you know, how does a billionaire think? When a billionaire is collecting, investing in collectibles, what do they think about? Um, And he's younger, so he mentions technology a lot. And we'll get into the other two billionaires later that come at it from an art standpoint. But Nat really mentions social media right up front. He uh, he says that uh, when you're chasing PSA 10s, which would be the same thing as a 9.8 uh, WADA or, or maybe a 95 gold VGA, when you're chasing the high-end stuff, you're not going to always find it at an auction house or eBay. And we're seeing that at Heritage. We're not seeing uh, 9.8 Marios hit Heritage. Um, so when you're looking for the high-end stuff, He is really a big social media fan, and he says uh, eBay, Instagram, and Facebook are the big three for him. So he grew up as a Braves fan. You know, his dad and him went to baseball games. He opened packs. uh, And then, of course, he uh, moved on to basketball like most people did in the late 90s and 2000s. Uh, You know, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James. And I just wanted to mention for you, uh, for you. Collectors out there that don't follow sports cards that are new to that, I'm I'm incorporating that as well because they're setting records this year. Uh, we've had a Mike Trout go for $3.84 million. We've had a Giannis Antetokounmpo go for $1.86 million. And we've had a LeBron James go for over $1.8 million. So that right there, those three pieces alone, um, we're talking... Upwards of seven million dollars. So you got video games hitting 150 with Mario. When I see cards like that, like a Giannis, he's never won a world championship. LeBron makes sense. Mike Trout, great baseball player, Hall of Famer, but how many championships does he have? LeBron makes sense. Look, you know, when I see seven million dollars for three pieces of cardboard, and I see a cardboard box that says Mario on it for 150, is it really that expensive? you tell me open your eyes ten million dollar coins ten million dollars worth of uh you know cardboard uh half a million dollars worth of pokemon and magic is a hundred thousand dollar mario game really that expensive i don't think so from my perspective that's my opinion my opinion is video games are the one that can really rise as far as a multiple so what is nat's strategy we know he has a passion for sports um, he goes for the big boys, Mike Trout, Kobe, LeBron. Um, that's, that's, that's a no-brainer. He goes for PSA 10s. Um, he doesn't dabble in BGS or SGC. There are other grading companies and trading cards. CGC just opened a new trading card division. They're doing Pokemon. They're going to go into sports. But uh, the billionaire sticks to the creme de la creme, the best grading company and the best grade. So for sports cards, that's PSA, and that would be Gem Mint 10. So if you're thinking about doing that for video games right now in the market in late 2020, that would be WADA 9.8 A++. So if you want to think like a billionaire, if you want to take something away from this podcast, think like a billionaire, go for the creme de la creme. Um, And not only are you going for the 9.8 A++ or the 95 gold, that wouldn't be creme de la creme if WADA is the leader. But you also have to go for the marquee titles. So we're talking about Mario, Zelda, um, LeBron, Trout, uh, who would be the Kobe Bryant. Um, Hard to say who that third tier is after Mario and Zelda. Um, It could be a Grand Theft Auto. We don't know yet. Um, You know, you could go down the line on the Zeldas and the Marios. But uh, in sports cards, it's always going to be the rookie cards. So I think in video games, in the end, another personal opinion, it's always going to be first print. I mean, when we look back in 10 or 20 years, what are the pieces that are going to go to 1 million, 2 million, 3 million? They're going to be the highest graded first print. And those are going to set all the other uh, values is the way I look at it. Because I watch this. I watch this happen in coins and cards over the last 40 years. Uh, For example, the uh, most expensive coin in the world is the highest graded first silver dollar. It's always the highest graded first. For the Pokemon, it's the first issue of the Charizard. It's always going to be the first of the best. And uh, I think for games, that's going to be the first Mario in the highest grade. And by the way, there's a 7.0 mat sticker Mario coming up to Heritage Signature in a month. That is going to be the highest graded first print Mario we've ever seen on the market. That's going to be very curious. Um, and that'll kind of tell us what the market thinks of a low grade not knowing the population report when uh, it could be the highest grade in the world and not everybody knows that. So what is a Nat's strategy? His strategy is scarcity value. And that's what I keep talking about. Scarcity value. We're talking about the value rising when the supply is thin. And it's not manufactured supply. We're not talking about limited edition games in 9.8 A++. We're talking about scarce. We're talking about Zelda TM. We're talking about Mario Matt Sticker, we're talking about Left Bros in the highest grade. We're talking about uh, a GTA 1 in 9.8A when there's a handful out there. We're talking about scarcity, not rarity. Scarcity has to do with the value going up because the number of pieces out there do not meet the demand. And that's what he says quote unquote, Nat Turner, the guy that just bought out the biggest grading company in the world. From a business perspective, quote-unquote, I believe in scarcity value. The investment value in cards for me is an unintended side effect. So he's saying investing is a side effect of scarcity value. So his target is targeting pieces that are scarce. And, um, you know, I don't want to go into his portfolio and the things I'm seeing, but I'm seeing Mickey Mantle, PSA 10, you know, Harmon Killebrew, PSA 10. We're talking about fifties. We're talking about baseball cards that are, you know, seventy years old. Where he's getting a gem mint copy, Hank Aaron, Willing Hayes, you know, um, Ernie Banks. These cards just don't come out in PSA ten. That's just impossible. That's like finding a matte sticker uh, nine point two or a gloss sticker nine point four. It's just insanity. And he's saying that the side effect of chasing scarcity. Is investment value, in other words, return. So, um, just like everybody else, he starts in the '90s with what he grew up with—the games that his dad, you know, and him went to baseball. He was a Braves fan. But where does he gravitate towards as he comes into money? He's a billionaire. Where does he start going with his investment dollars? He goes into high-end historical vintage. He goes beyond what he grew up with. He goes beyond nostalgia. He goes into scarcity and historical. And like I said on the last podcast, Jay asked me what's undervalued in the market. And I will say it again. I think historical is undervalued. And I think scarcity overall is misunderstood. I think everyone understands rarity. But scarcity, we don't know what it means because we don't have a population report, let alone a double population report. We need a population report across the board from VGA, WADA, uh, there's a company UKG, there's one in Brazil starting up. We need a population across the board for raw, sealed, cases, graded, CIB, the whole population report. Once you know that, then you know exactly what's scarce. Then you can say, okay, that Harmon Killebrew or that Mickey Mantle, it's not a rookie card, it's not a first print. print—but I'm safe because there's two or three in the world, and I can go right on Collector's Universe's database, I can look that up, they're full disclosure, they're 100% transparency, they were on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, Uh, they don't play any funny games, they're going private now, so that might, you know, we don't know what's going to happen as a private company, but um, um, when you are a big company, the thing about it is you can't really play funny games. So I believe PSA's population report, I believe CGC's population report, and I think population report is really, uh, it's either glass is half full or half empty. You know, if you're chasing scarcity like these billionaires, and you're doing that pre-population report, you're doing that as an investor speculator. You're speculating on what the population report is going to say, because when the population report drops, that's when everybody in the world knows what's scarce. We can all guess what's rare. Rarity, you know, you can do your research. You can research what's rare. NWC gray cards, there's about a 100 of them left. We don't know how many are graded. We don't know how many are high grade, low grade, mid grade. You know, we don't know. We don't know how many left bros are going to be nine four nine six nine two nine zero. But we kind of can guess the rarity of left bros in, in general, the rarity of matte sticker, gloss sticker, you know, round, SMB2, uh, Zelda TM versus registered R. We can guess on rare, but you cannot guess on scarcity because scarcity is set by the market daily. And every day people are submitting new games and scarcity is a moving target. And that's why he says it's an unintended side effect. He's very intelligent because the side effect, he doesn't say it's going to go up or down. He says it's a side effect. And what I'm reading into that is there's other factors. There's macroeconomic factors, there's taxes, there's fees, there's a, you know, all kinds of things that go into the side effect of either making a net profit or a net uh, loss. So uh, let's go deeper into this uh, interview. We're 13 minutes in. We're trying to pick the brain of a billionaire. Um, He's going also for the best brand. He's picking tops. Once he went beyond nostalgia, beyond the games that he grew up with, the baseball games he saw as a kid with his dad, he went to the best brand, the best grade, the best grading company, and the marquee titles, the keys, the, uh, the chasers, whatever you want to call them. So he's saying that uh, 75% of what he's buying is certified and encapsulated. He doesn't say graded. He says certified and encapsulated. He's thinking long-term. He's thinking authentic. This thing is in a plastic case that's safe in some storage facility long-term. So once again, the billionaire doesn't say, I'm acquiring... I'm buying graded cards. He doesn't say that. He says I'm acquiring, uh, I'm, I'm uh, collecting, I'm, I'm bidding on, I'm buying, certified and encapsulated. And I I threw that up on IG like a month or two ago. I got hate, hate, hate. You know, I said this is certified authentication. This is not just grading. And I got hate. Um, You know, think like a billionaire. If you want to make money, investing in games, sports, trading card games, uh, video games think like a billionaire. And he's been doing this for a long time. He's got decades of experience. That's another thing. If you want to be at the next level where you're going beyond the black market, where you're not really making money by avoiding fees and IRS and taxes, where you're going to make money as an honest businessman, um, you're going to have to build a team. And if you're going to build a team, the number one rule we learned at, at business school was it's not about the idea. It's about the team members. And when you build a team, you want to build a team member that's loaded with experts. You want to have each of your team member have 10 years of experience in a certain area. So maybe one person has 10 years of experience in social media. Another person has 10 years of experience in eBay. Another person has 10 years of experience working at GameStop or retro game shops. That comes together as a team. You open a little store. One guy does the internet. One, guy, you know, one girl does social. And uh, someone else does the uh, cash register out front. Something like that. Look at him. He's got 25 years of experience. That's on top of his experience as a businessman, an entrepreneur, an investor, um, flipping companies. So, you know, this guy's not going to make any mistakes, really. Um, The question is, did he overpay for Collector's Universe? That's something we're not going to really know until the next three, four years, depending on the next uh, economic crash. So let's see if we can pull out any nuggets for studying Nat Turner, the guy who just bought Collector's Universe, which was rumored to make an offer for WADA. Um, he's talking about Michael Jordan, Kobe, Kobe Bryant, when he sold his first company. So that's before he's a billionaire. So before he became a billionaire, he was thinking differently. He was thinking nostalgic. After he became a billionaire, he's starting to think long term. He's starting to think uh, historical, vintage, and the top of the top, the creme de la creme. Um, now he's doing, you know, Mantle, Mays, Aaron, Ryan, he's doing all the Hall of Fame, uh, goats, we call them, you know, the best hitters, the best home run hitters, the best, uh, pitchers, goats. So that would be something like, uh, Donkey Kong, um, you know, going back in the timeline, maybe a, uh, ET, you know, a 9.8, a plus plus, or, uh, a space invaders, you know, who knows what is historical in Atari? What would a billionaire go for in Atari? You know, that's a real big question mark that I think the, the market is is hemming and hawing with as we see Atari get soft. But we haven't seen the historical marquee top grades come to market. He goes into the diversification of his uh, inventory. Um, he talks about diversifying from baseball into basketball and then into a little bit of hockey and football. He's also diver- diversifying into sealed. So he does have 25% in sealed, which for video games would be... The closest thing to that would be sealed cases, so raw sealed cases. In other words, you go buy Atari raw sealed cases when it's soft, and you put that away. And then you can really do anything with it later. You can grade the uh, cases themselves maybe with VGA. Um, You can send in the individual pieces to VGA or WADA. Um, If you're in the UK, you can send them into UKG. And his final takeaway was... Due to the internet, brick and mortar has gone away. So he grew up in the 90s where he used to go into card shops. I had card shops in the 90s. It was vibrant. We had kids coming in every day. You know, we were keeping them off the streets. Uh, they were collecting cards instead of doing drugs and hanging out. And it was a really good thing we were doing for the community. But the internet came along. 9-11 came along. And uh, 5,000 card shops were wiped out. So he talks about that. He said, yeah, things have changed. The internet changed the game. and um, the hobby was affordable back then, but now it's not. So it really comes down to Twitter and social media bringing people back into the game, and that's how he's doing deals. Um, uh, he gives an example. He uh, he hooked up with a kid in Korea who just pulled a Kobe Bryant card that doesn't really uh, want it. It's really rare. Um. He bought the box on eBay, got it shipped to Korea. He opened the box, got a really rare Kobe Bryant, uh, a billionaire hooked up with a kid in Korea on Instagram, and they did a trade. He, he gave away a LeBron James for a Kobe. And, you know, that's something that just can't happen back in the 90s or 80s or 70s or 60s. So when we look at social media, let's look at the benefit of it. It's global, and I think that's overlooked. When you're looking for pieces, historical, nostalgic, uh, you know, popular are you thinking about American only? Are you thinking about a global market? Because when you look at sports cards and Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, the difference between them and like Mike Trout and LeBron is I would say they're global. Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, everybody around the, the world knows who they are. We can say the same thing about Mario, but I was having this discussion with my wife and we know the Japanese market very well. And, um, you know, for example, in sports cards, they're not going to want to collect a Japanese Ichiro card. They're going to want to collect a Made in USA Ichiro baseball card. Um, they're not going to want to collect a Hello Kitty. They're going to want to collect a Snoopy or a Disney piece from America. When you're thinking about global demand, like this billionaire doing a trade on Instagram with a kid in Korea, you got to you got to know that he's thinking globally. He's thinking putting together stuff that has global demand, global scarcity. What does the world want? And that's the biggest takeaway. When you go into checking all the eight boxes, and I'll go over those again, um, rarity, scarcity, popularity, uh, catalyst with Super Mario World opening up, popularity, iconic, significant, historic, you got to think about this globally. And, um, you know, who's going to come down the line and want to buy the piece that you're buying today from Heritage or Ebay? Is it an American? Is it someone in the Middle East? Is it an Asian investor? Is it a real estate investor? Is it a billionaire like this who's coming into the game and buying grading companies and thinking way, way, you know, way out there on Mars? So speaking of Mars, um, what about the other two people that bought Collector's Universe, the company that made an offer for WADA a month or two ago? It's really funny that three people bought Collectors Universe and three people bought the uh, Gloucester Mario that went to Pawn Stars and asked a million dollars, including the founder of Heritage. So the takeaway right there is, if you want to, if you want to do things right and you want to invest at the highest level and get the best pieces, I would suggest putting together a team. And I'll mention the dentist in Florida who did that early and he acquired most of the high-end sticker seals that were on the market a year or two ago with a group of other investors. He was the lead investor, the guy that knew you know, collectibles. He came from sports cards, um, just like this billionaire that bought out Collector's Universe, and uh, he moved over to video games, and I think he uh, got together with some dentists. They put together a little club, and they acquired some of the top pieces in the industry. You can uh, look at... Uh, my Facebook page and and find the links to some of uh, his thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar pieces on the YouTube video that recently got dropped. If you want to get a visual, so what about the uh, the two the two guys that are with uh, Nat on the team that just bought out the biggest collectibles deal of the year at seven hundred million dollars? Well, one of the guys' name is Dan, and um, this guy's uh, described as whip smart uh, investing. You know brilliant, brilliant hedge fund manager. He's a Wharton grad. And uh, basically, personally, he uh, he's a billionaire based on assets in the firm. That's going to be stocks, bonds, whatever, equities, um, paper, paper investing. But he also owns a part of the Charlotte Hornets. He has a massive real estate portfolio and he has an art collection. So uh, he's an art collector. And I find that very interesting because um, art has closer ties to coins, cards, video games than probably real estate and, uh, you know, even owning a sports team. Um, A sports team will get you, uh, you know, a lot of knowledge on the current players, but um, I don't know if that gives you knowledge on, let's say, 50s vintage uh, pieces that uh, Nat's collecting. So... I'm thinking that uh, Dan came over from Wall Street and art and obviously a big uh, uh, sports fan with real estate. So he likes to diversify his massive stake in hedge funds with physical investing. And physical investing is investing in a in a business, a brick and mortar business, a professional uh, basketball team, along with a real estate portfolio, along with an art collection. And I do know generally art does well in recessions. And it's, and it's a way you can play with your tax returns because uh, you can do art as a personal capital gain and not as a business. So he's mixing. He's not only diversifying uh, into different sectors, he's diversifying on his tax return into business investing and personal investing. And uh, if we look at the lead investor on the team, um, he's also doing art as well. So, so um, Brett and Daniel, according to this article at Art News, are uh, doing a lot of investments in the art world. So, for example, they paid 28 million for a Warhol. They paid 35 for another piece. They paid 70 million for another piece. So he's described as a new breed of collectors. Um, that are buying artworks in exchange for lines of credit. So they are investing on credit. And I wanted to do an episode on this. Um, I know it's happening. Uh, I'm doing it. Uh, Business owners do it every day. Target, Walmart, Amazon, they're all doing it. I mean, businesses all take lines of credit and invest that in inventory. That's normal. But Dan, he's a hedge fund manager. He just bought PSAP. PCGS collectors universe who wants to buy WADA, and he is pulling credit lines at probably two, three, four percent and buying artwork. Um, that's kind of like you pulling out a fifty thousand dollar credit line at three or four percent, starting a little LLC and getting a uh, fifty thousand dollars worth of inventory and flipping that for let's say ten percent and walking away for five. So it looks like the art art market is at sixty-seven billion dollars. Uh, I assume this is domestic in twenty twenty. Um, And the question is, how much of that is credit? Well, J.P. Morgan says that uh, they have a credit line with Dan, who's part of the team that bought The Collector's Universe, and he has 29 pieces under security. That means they're held for collateral, so J.P. Morgan can go in and grab the art if he doesn't pay his $300 million worth of credit. Okay, what's the lesson here? Well, the lesson here is, why is a Wall Street whiz kid, who's worth a billion dollars in paper assets, pulling out credit lines to invest in art. Think about that. Why, why, why isn't he pulling out credit lines to buy gold or Bitcoin or, uh, uh, you know, uh, shorts or options in the markets? Obviously, he's hedging. He's a hedge fund manager and he's hedging his hedge fund. I mean, this is a really bullish sign. If he's that confident where he can pull a $300 million mortgage, I'm just going to call it a mortgage because that's basically what it is. It's a monthly payment, principal plus interest. It might even be interest only, so it might not even be principal. He's pulling a $300 million credit line to buy art. Um, you know, I'm pulling credit lines to buy WADA. It's the same darn thing. He's looking at it as a business investment and it's secured, which means if he's securing that credit line with JP Morgan, he's going to get a very low rate. I mean, I've seen refis for 1.99 right now. Okay. Do a little calculation. You know, let's say you're, you're thinking about opening up an eBay business or something like that. You want $50,000 worth of inventory to start. You get an EIN, you get some business credit, you pull out a $50,000 line, no doc, low doc, no, uh, no uh, tax return. You just tell them your revenues. You you claim all the sales you had on social media over the last 11 months. You tell them, you know, I'm a business. You, you're you're pulling out 50,000. You're paying uh, 4% through Bank of America or whoever. That's t- $2,000 worth of interest only. You divide that by 12. You're making $167 payments per month. So you're pulling 50. You're starting your company retroactively. You're claiming all the sales you had in social media this year. You're going to write that on your tax return early next year. You're paying $167 per month, and suddenly you have $50,000 in investment-grade video games in your eBay store, on your Instagram, on your Twitter feed. And you're in business, and you're doing business just like a billionaire. Sure, you're paying 1% or 2% more than uh, Dan but you're using the same strategies and tax strategies and you're being an honest businessman. You're paying your interest. You're paying your fees. You're above board and you can grow your business. Uh, there's going to be a day when PayPal FNF, uh, that's all I'm going to say for this. We're going to leave that for another podcast. Let's take another break and look at the heavy hitter on the team. Hopper here. Um, thanks for coming back for Taking a look at the last billionaire out of the three that bought Collector's Universe for the biggest game investing, collectible investing uh, investment in 2020, if not over the last several decades. I don't remember a $700 million investment into collectibles. Um, And I've been in collectibles for, I guess, 30 years professionally, 40 years, you know, as a hobbyist. Um, And I just can't believe this deal because the stock price was $70. Um. You know, you can you can pull up CLCT and um, this is the company that they bought. It's called Collectors Universe, Inc. Price to earnings ratio at 52. Um, But if you look at the max, you know, this this was three dollars a share in 2009. Uh, It hit eleven dollars a share in 2018. But it's just shot up like a rocket in Corona. Um, Let's look at year to date. It started the year at $22 a share, and they bought the company at 77 So they bought it at 3x uh, of pre-corona. Um, it, it dropped to 15 in April, so that's more like 5x. So they paid a lot of money for this company. Um, again, they own PCGS, uh, NG, uh, not NGC, but uh, PSA. Um, they're called the parent company of PSA. That's usually what you're going to see on Google. So who was the third... Um, billionaire that just bought out Collector's Universe who tried to buy out WADA a month ago for $700 million. Um, Steve Cohen, and I'm guessing he's the lead investor, kind of like the founder of Heritage Auctions buying the gloss sticker sealed Mario, uh, which according to Dennis and the Pawn Stars uh, video is an anomaly, quote unquote, an anomaly and might be the only sticker sealed Mario on the planet. And it happens to be a 9.4. So that's a million dollar game. Um, Steve Cohen, I'm going to go with Wikipedia because, uh, you know, when you're really big, Wikipedia tends to give it, uh, you know, give it straight. So he he's a billionaire. He's got, uh, you know, a lot of things going for him. His mom was a piano teacher. His dad was a dress manufacturer. He's the third of seven brothers. He liked Playing poker, he liked playing poker early on. He was also into team sports, so he understands teams. He was in a fraternity. He's a he's a team guy. He started his own brokerage account when he was a college student in the late '70s, early '80s, with a thousand bucks of his tuition money. Very very interesting. So he's a gambler. Um, he uh, his first big win was a hundred grand. He made eight grand on his first day. He started as a junior trader. He worked his way up, um, and he finally get into, he got into hedge funds. He's had a couple scandals. Um, he's had to pay $1.8 billion in penalties. So is that right there? Like I say, play life like a video game, try, fail, and become a master. So Cohen, he's had a $1.8 million, uh, billion dollar penalty. So that's a failure. Um, insider uh, information type thing. Um, handing out information to outsiders. So I would say that he's now a master of Wall Street and probably he can see that PSA is a money printing machine along with PCGS, WADA, CGC, uh, VGA. They're all money printing machines. So if you're money printing, you probably want to do that privately. Another investor told me the other day, he said less is more. I've been thinking about that a lot because I give out a lot of information and I'm more of a nonprofit volunteer, just sharing hundred percent transparency and, uh, you know, full disclosure. But on the flip side, if you don't want to pursue that strategy and you want to try to maximize profitability, less is more, which means you, you buy a public company and you take it private because you don't have the SEC breathing down your neck anymore. You don't have people that are going to come in every three months and tear up your accounting books. And, you know, Every three months, they want to see growth. they want to see profitability. If it's a private company, you get to play it more like a game. you get to play it like a sport. you get to invest in areas. you know, let's say artificial intelligence is just bleeding out and it's not making any money in grading, but you can invest a lot of money in that without having uh, any turnover or return because the market might not, you know, they might think artificial intelligence is is good today, but you never know what happens tomorrow. So, the other thing is the data like i said the other podcast Wada's most valuable uh, property is probably their database of customers and and the pop report that's intellectual property based in a database so if you're looking at psa pcgs the psa registry set the registry set is every darn top-end collection in the world. All the millionaire's financial data, all the millionaire's address, where they live, where they have their collections, what collections they have, that is like priceless information. So when you take that private, you're also you're also respecting the database. So there's a lot of reasons other than the failure learning that, uh, you know, I don't want the SEC breathing down my neck. I'm going to take this money printing machine private. That's kind of my opinion on it. Um, He's also done venture capital, so he's he's into taking high-risk, early-stage companies. Maybe he sees uh, Collector's Universe as an early-stage uh, player in buying WADA, buying VGA, buying CGC, buying uh, UKG, buying the Brazilian, maybe going global, maybe buying all the grading companies, bringing them together in one database and rolling out registration and uh, pop reports to the entire globe. You know, maybe he's thinking really big beyond what you and I are thinking about when we're on heritage bidding for games, because let's face it, the billionaires, they're not on heritage. Those are millionaires. The billionaires are looking at this from a global standpoint. They're looking at data, analytics, uh, software, databases, uh, front end, back end, artificial intelligence, robotics, pre-grading, post-grading, you know, all this other stuff. That is going to create an industry uh, that could be a big one. You know how big can gaming get if it's already approaching a trillion, including digital? What about if we digitize physical, which is the grading side, the money printing side? I mean, can that get to ten billion, a hundred billion? If we're if we're looking at the art market, the art market is reaching for a hundred billion. So uh, you know, the art market, it's it's uh, it's really. The way I look at the mark market, I don't know a lot about it, but I assume that it's much fewer pieces that are exchanging in that 68 billion. Whereas, in uh, if you're looking at sports cards, Pokemon coins, if you add all that up, maybe he's looking at a trillion dollar, uh, you know, Grand Slam. Maybe he's looking at something very aggressive. I know this: they're still hiring and they're still expanding. So he's buying a growing company in a bubble. Um, he's taking, uh, you know, a lot of chances here. Um, if I was an investor, I don't know if I would buy CLCT at at $76. I think I bought it at like 43 and sold it for 45 or something. I'm a trader. So I look for a dollar or two and then get in and out. Um, but at $77, uh, $700 million. What better way to hedge your bets than get two other billionaires? So, you know, each billionaire puts up what? 200 million. So maybe a fifth of their net worth. Well, Cohen happens to be worth uh, what? Let's let's look here. He's the 30th richest man in America or the world. So you know, for him, he can take a billion dollar hit. He could actually uh, you know take a hit if Collector's Universe drops in half. But what if Collector's Universe buys Water? What if Collector's Universe buys VGA? What if Collector's Universe? Uh, buys CGC and merges the uh, trading card division into something like manual grading or something. You know, what if he's thinking like I've been thinking? Like grading just started, you know? Grading, grading's just started. We haven't even started grading things like uh, uniforms. I don't think we're doing uh, actually. Collectors Universe is doing autographs, but I don't know if they're grading, you know, like bats or physical things. When we're thinking about artwork, that kind of opens the door to everything. So. Where does he come from? Well, fancy that. He comes from artwork. So, Cohen's reputation in art, not only is he one of the richest people on the planet, he uh, has one of the biggest uh, art collections in the world at a billion dollars, just like Dan. Um, He's a very serious art collector, but he just started in 2000, so he's only 20 20 years in. And who does he go for? He goes for the goats, Monet, Manet. Manet. You know, he's buying stuff from like Steve Wynn. He bought a Picasso from Steve Wynn. There's another thing. There's another lesson. When you start talking about the high-end investors, the high-end pieces, the sticker-sealed black boxes, you're going to need a relationship. If you want to become a very successful video game investor... Or even a trading card game investor, like uh, Nat said. You're going to have to connect to people every day and develop those relationships every day over decades. I mean, no one can just walk up to Steve Wynn and say, hey, will you sell me your Picasso for $139 million? Obviously, he has a reputation. Uh, he has the money. Um, he obviously has a bank transfer that's not going to you know, decline. This is not a credit card game. Um, you know, there's authenticity issues, there's delivery issues, handling issues, storage issues. Um funny, Steve wins in Nevada where he's not paying any income tax. I'm gonna bring up that in the next next uh because there's some big tax moves going on in late 2020. And you can make your own too. I'm hoping to end that with uh, you know, stuff that you can do. But um, yeah, he's bought in a Picasso for 139. Um it looks like he's uh, you know, he's actually. Overpaying for art. You know, Steve Cohen's reputation is, quote, unquote, overpaying for art. Now, what are we seeing at Heritage? Where is all the hate coming from? I see the hate coming from collectors that don't have a million dollars that say millionaires are overpaying for games. Are they? I don't know. We don't know. Because when you're a billionaire a millionaire, you're looking to flip that game in, what, three, four, five, ten years, maybe Maybe it's part of a trust or a foundation or a nonprofit uh, donation. Maybe there's tax benefits. Maybe there's a tax write off. The actual net profit, we don't know what it is. It's probably going to be positive and it's probably going to happen in the future, which means they didn't overpay. The way I look at it, if you make a profit, you didn't overpay. So uh, there's another way to look at overpaying. What if they're setting the market? They're setting the bar higher because they know. That is the finest available. Thank you, Collectibles Group on YouTube um, for giving me a new term, finest available. And that's what happened with Left Bros. Left Bros, at that moment in time in late 2020, Left Bros setting the record at 156. That is the finest example available on the public markets. Maybe it's not the finest example in the, you know, the 2040 population report or the global, uh, you know, population report, but it's the finest example at that time in the public markets. And I get a lot of hate on Instagram that the stuff I'm putting up is not accurate. Well, I'm simply reporting what I see on public markets. Please don't shoot the messenger. I'm reporting what I see by clicking on sold listings on eBay and sold listing on Heritage. I don't know if the transaction was 100%. I don't know if the bank wire could have failed. That's not for me to decide. I'm not delving into the buyers and the sellers' personal information. I'm talking about public information. So from now on, when I talk about finest examples, such as this Picasso, Le Rev, 139 million. Maybe he overpaid by 9 million or 10 million, but you know what? The next guy that comes along is going to say, well, how much did it sell for last time? This happens in real estate, you know, high-end collectible cars, uh, all kinds of things when there's, you know, one piece, two pieces, one piece really with art. Uh, and for video games, Left Bros, we hear there's one more. You know, Is there one more of a 9.2 sealed, graded by WADA? We'll see, and that'll probably affect the price. So when you do overpay and there another piece comes out, you can use dollar-cost averaging and you can buy the second piece. And we're waiting to see that. I have investors waiting to see if that stuff's going to appear on Heritage. And I think Robin was the one that said very astutely, he said, You know what? When you see these high prices, here's what we know for sure. The person that bought that, if they did overpay, like Steve Cohen, who just bought Collector's Universe, who tried to buy WADA. He just dropped, uh, you know, a couple hundred million on a grading company that's looking to buy another video game grading company. If you think like a billionaire and you're overpaying to set the market because you know you're going to hold your piece for long term and it's not going to come up for auction. And when it does, it's going to be well beyond what you paid anyway. Robbins said, they're going to protect the floor. In other words, not only are they setting the market, they're protecting the bottom of the market. And that's why finest example, highest grade, keys, first print makes sense. Because it's not like the Spider-Man syndrome where you have a 9.8 come out every two weeks and it, it gets softer and softer and softer because... You can't protect the bottom. You can protect the bottom if there's one or two out there, like let's say a 9.4 Singer Zelda. It's easy to say that's a million-dollar piece because if a 9.0 comes in, it's not really going to affect the 9.4 because we know a 9.6 and a 9.8 aren't coming in. So the only thing he has to protect is the floor on the 9.4. He doesn't have to protect the 9.0, the 8.5. And the general rule I'm using today, this is my opinion, my professional opinion, is it's a half. You know, a a 9-2 on this rare, really rare stuff is half. So 9-4 Singer, if that's a million today in the market, the 9-2 is is 500,000 and the 9-0 is 250. And you don't have to protect the 9-4 if the 9-0 comes out. Now, if a 9-6 comes out, that's when you can say, okay, he overpaid because the 9-6 didn't go for 2x of the 9-4. But if the 9-6 goes for 3x, Maybe the buyer, he or she did not overpay. So is overpaying a bad thing? I don't think it is. I don't think overpaying is a bad thing for the market, for the stuff you have in inventory, for your own investments. Of course, it's a bad thing if you sold out a year ago, if you sold out three years ago, if you just sold out your collection in uh, Corona. If you see people paying big money, of course, you think they overpaid. But what about Two years down the road, three years down the road, five years down the road, when the population drops, let's say Collectors Universe does buy Wada, they up the bid from 10 to 20 to 50 million. They buy out Wada, all the comic book investors and the people behind the scenes at Wada get paid out. We got a whole new breed of millionaires that just got cashed out. They're all walking away with two, three, four, five million in their pocket. Uh, The money printing machine gets folded into the the Collectors Universe group. They start doing registry sets. They do the uh, pop report. They do the database, the uh, price guides. Uh, they do the networking. They do the cataloging. You know they're hiring. They're doing artificial. And here, here we, you know, year three, year four, we got a full blown population report. What do you think's going to happen to finest examples such as Left Bros, such as a nine point eight eight plus plus Pokemon piece? Or uh, maybe even a GTA 1 in 9.8 A++. What if we find out there's only two of those or four of those in three years? Do you really think we're going to look back and say, oh, in Corona, everyone was overpaying? So you tell me. I always talk about Catalyst. Make sure you look at all eight boxes, including Catalyst, The biggest catalyst. And I would say it's undervalued, Jay. Um, If you're listening, Jay, I I don't know... um, if you're into the uh, business side of things, but uh, I'm not sure if you came from sports cards like me, but number one on my list is Catalyst. I'm going to rank the eight-box system someday, but for me personally, Catalyst is number one. I don't buy a piece in sports cards, coins, cards, uh, video games, uh, you know, anything. I don't buy anything in the last 30 years unless there's a Catalyst, unless I think that coin is going to... be sold later when the price of silver is higher. Unless I don't think that sports card, that player is going to go to the playoffs and maybe win a championship. Unless I don't think that video game is related to a character that's going to have positive news come out, such as the Super Mario Brothers grand opening announcement. Those are catalysts. For me, catalysts. The big catalysts that you can all bet on, that you can all make money on, that can counteract negative catalysts like presidential taxes and all that is the pop report. There's two ways to look at that. Is it a negative catalyst or a positive catalyst? And you know what? It's going to be game by game, and not only game by game, piece by piece, and not only piece by piece, grade by grade. So it's not only going to be the franchise, it's going to be the character or game, then it's going to be the title, then it's going to be the grade, then it's going to be the grading company, then it's going to be a population in finest example versus the field. And I believe that the finest example is going to set pricing for the rest of the grades. So, you know, you can use a ballpark 50% every drop or 2x as you go up. Uh, I'm doing that right now in my acquisition strategy. I'm only buying, uh, you know, the good stuff that has a catalyst. You can do your own research. The easiest way, if you come from comic books, think of Marvel movies. So when you research Marvel characters, what movies are in the pipeline, Just do that for video games. Look at the developers, look at the timelines, look at the manufacturers, look at stuff like Super Mario World, what Nintendo's doing, what Microsoft's doing, what Sony's doing. Now, if you're coming from sports cards, it's all about, you know, championships every year. We've got that catalyst. It doesn't happen like clockwork in video games, but in video games, there's always development happening and there's always a new game happening. And you can count on Nintendo to uh, share, you know, stuff like uh, Mario Kart being opened in February or whatever um and the other thing for games is is to watch i think the closest thing to sports which would be the playoffs would i call the playoffs you know game time and i think for game time in the video game trillion dollar industry it's really about digitization so the catalyst the negative catalyst for gamers playing physical is digitization but for collectors and investors That can be a positive catalyst, just like we saw with Super Mario Sunshine, just like we saw with uh, the 35th anniversary of Super Mario. And look at Super Mario in 2020. Uh, what What was the piece that survived the correction in November? We had a correction, even Mike Tyson came down. I mean, what survived that correction? Mario. Mario is really the only one across the board that has survived everything. Why? Well, he had a massive catalyst and... He's the Michael Jordan or the Spider-Man, Superman of the industry. And Nintendo's going into physical, whereas Sony and uh, and Microsoft are going into digital. I mean, multiple catalysts, rarity, scarcity, nostalgia, popular, iconic, significant. And he has history. Yes, him and Michael Jordan are exactly the same age. Michael Jordan has 37,000 first print run rookie cards in investment grade. How many, does, how many does Mario have? How many people have actually played basketball, collect basketball cards, send money every day to Collector's Universe that just got bought by these three billionaires I talked about today, versus how many people have played a Mario game, might come into game investing, will start sending money to uh, UKG, VGA, WADA, which is probably going to get bought out by one of these other companies. Think about that. If the demand for Mario exceeds Michael Jordan... Um, mathematically, if there's not 37,000 investment-grade Mario rookies out there, uh, you tell me. I've never seen uh, supply going to zero and demand going up. So uh, hopefully you've got some uh, tips out of this. To close from the billionaires, um, I think the lessons are, number one, build a team. Number two, uh, make sure the entity... Is set up properly. In other words, an investment vehicle. Like I just saw Nerdy Girl move to Florida where there's no income taxes. Um, I just saw Hewlett Packard leaving California to a a state where there's no income taxes. I just saw Elon Musk moving his operations, selling his real estate to a state where there's no income taxes. I just saw Red Hood Comics, uh, the second grader at WADA, uh, set up his company in uh, Nevada where there's no income taxes. So number one, build a team. Number two, Make sure you have the correct investment vehicle, whether that's a retro game shop, an eBay store, a legitimate Instagram or Facebook business, an LLC, you know, the right state, the right country and all that. And number three, diversify. Um, Collectors Universe is the most diversified grading company on the planet. They're the industry leader. They have the finest examples of all the coins and the cards on the planet, the finest examples of the autographs on the planet. Um, They're even in movie memorabilia, you know, as far as autographs go. They got PSA DNA. By the way, you can send stuff that's PSA DNA, which is Collector's Universe, into WADA. I do believe there's a uh, Tyson on uh, Instagram by, uh, by a collector investor who got that authenticated by Collector's Universe first, then sent it to WADA, who encased it, certified, and authenticated it as a video game, kept those two pieces together, and that's the finest autographed Tyson on the planet. So, you know, grading companies are also working together right now. They're already working together. WADA and these other authentic uh, autograph certification companies. So that's another thing. Diversify in many more ways than one. Uh, Think You're looking from Mars. You're thinking, okay, diversify globally. So start thinking about it. Asian investors, Middle Eastern investors. What are they going to want? Are they going to want scarcity or are they going to want historic? Are they going to want popularity, iconic, or because catalyst? versus your American. And then start thinking diversification into platforms, into grading companies, into um, print runs, grades. Like I know Nerdy Girl will buy an oval seal and a round seal. She's hedging. And that's that's an example of these two hedge fund managers hedging their real estate. They're hedging their uh, hedge fund uh, stock investments, equities, bonds. They're hedging uh, their sports teams they're hedging all that. They're hedging baseball and basketball with hockey and football. They're hedging all that with the money printing machine. They're hedging that with grading, authentication, networking, industry leading. Now, they're con- now they have contacts across the industry with every single dealer, collector, investor, overnight with that database. So uh, I guess the final, final piece is think about your own database. Think about getting into Excel uh making a few sheets i would say one would be your bookkeeping another taxes maybe another list of your team members and then another list of your platforms and all that another list of your inventory make a sheet for um Data, you know, the data that you think is going to be value. You can build your own pop report. You can build a list of customers. Uh, you could you could start keeping people's addresses with their permission. You can build a list of email addresses. You can build a list of the top relationships that you want to focus on as a collector investor. You might want to build a list of, let's say, black boxes. Where are all the black boxes? Well, I know the dentist has these. I know the owner of Heritage bought the nine four gloss sealed. I know Rally has this hang tab. And you could build a database of your own of all the black box Marios and see where they're all at and then start putting together your spreadsheet and say, well, hey, team members, we want to develop relationships with a dentist in Florida who's not paying income tax along with CGC and Nerdy Girl Now. So, you know, taxes, entities, teamwork, databases, all this stuff you can do as a small investor as well. So I hope that You're getting my value. That's the main goal of this podcast is to bring the high-level billionaire, millionaire thinking all the way down to Mario and your normal inventory pieces to where you can be a better investor. You can make more money. You can build for the future of your family. You can build wealth and transfer that to your family without any illegal uh, issues with taxes and inheritance and all that. You can leave a vehicle or a team or a business or an entity to your offspring, kids, family, partners, business partners, whatever. Or even donate that to museums and support all the the uh, great video game museums out there. There's all kinds of ways to do this, to build a leg- legacy, to do this for 10 years, grind away, and then at the end do something good for society. So I'm hoping that you can get value to where you can increase uh, the effectiveness of your investing and in the end benefit someone like your kids. Um, people you meet online, et cetera, a nonprofit organization, et cetera. So play life like a video game. Try something new. Try thinking about your team in terms of do you have 10 years of experience? Try something new. Try thinking about an investment vehicle. Should I be a sole proprietor or an LLC or a corporation like in Washington where Nintendo and Microsoft and Xbox and, uh, you know, uh, NES came out of? They're paying no income taxes. Should I be thinking about a Washington corporation instead of a Florida one or a Texas one? Also, try something new as far as diversification. Maybe Famicom. Maybe think about. Maybe contact some of the Middle Eastern investors on social media. Ask them what do they want, because their tastes are going to be very different. And finally, try something new as far as developing your own um, method of buying stuff. So, you know, open up a spreadsheet, create a list of uh, eight boxes or criteria that you have, create like a a napkin diversification on your portfolio. Do I want 30% NES, this percent region, you know, Asian, this percent pal NTSE. this percent for, you know, this this type of investor, this for dealers, whatever. And um, build your wealth. Sure, you're going to have some failures. Sure, you're going to buy pieces that go underwater like I did with Spider-Man or I did with Atari 2600 or I did with quite a few early NES titles because I didn't grow up with NES. Um, Don't collect what you love. Um, I would say invest in what your buyer wants when they want it. And you're the only one that can answer that question. In other words, exit strategy. So I hope uh, you got some value out of today. Um, This is the biggest collectibles deal in 2020. I hope this is evergreen content if you're listening in the future. If you're looking back on 2020, it was an incredible year. We had the uh, highest ever... uh, baseball cards sell. We had the highest ever basketball cards sell. We had the highest ever Pokemon cards sell. We had the highest ever video game cards sell in 2020. It was an amazing year. Uh, Money's being printed left and right by VGA, WADA, PSA, PCGS, CGC. I even heard comics did okay in the bubble. So, you know, if you're looking back from the future, um, just remember this. There was a lot of people in the market that thought these prices were too high They thought 2020 prices were way too high compared to 2019-18 and going back. So you tell me, hit me up uh, in three years, five years, and you tell me, were we way off in 2020 investing in video games? How did it turn out? Hopper out.